0: That's where I learned family law. So there was one partner mm-hmm. who was, he did civil litigation, but he also did estate planning and family law. Yeah. When he interviewed, he and another partner interviewed me and he asked, what area of law are you not interested in? And I said, family law, I thought it was safe. Yeah. And he said, why not? I said, well, I just feel like it's too much drama and I don't want to get involved in people's personal lives. And then he laughed because he said, well, I do family law. So about maybe six months into me working there, he said, I know you say you don't want to do family law. That here is a file. Mm. And I said, I don't know anything about this. And he said, uh, he said it's okay, because you're going to learn. Right. And we're not going to build a client for your learning. Oh, so that's wow. what I'm talking. They had integrity.
1: Hi, everyone. This is Sandra Munoz, and you're listening to Law & Order, Me Some Tacos. We're here today with a guest, a very special guest. Her name is Araceli Lerma, and I'm going to let Araceli tell you a little bit about who she is and what she does. And yeah, let's start there, Araceli. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Sandra, for having me. It's a pleasure and it's a
0: privilege to be sitting here with you and getting to talk about issues that are important to us like Sandra, I grew up in East L.A. Yeah. Like Sandra, I went to attend a Garfield High School. Woo! And uh, we did not cross paths in we didn't,
1: In high school. I'm, I'm older than you, right? Yes, I'm class of 91. From ah, Garfield. you're young. <laughs> I'm class of 1987.
0: <laughs> okay. Only four years difference.
1: <laughs> We're both Jaime Escalante kids. Yeah.
0: So I grew up in the Maravilla Housing Projects in East L.A. I'm the youngest of four. Um, and... I attended public school in East LA from K through 12. Yeah, and I'm my oldest sister, who's eight years older than I, was the one who paved the path and attended college. Did she? Uh, yes, she. She, went al-
1: to, she also went to
0: public schools. She went to public schools K through 12 as well. She also went to Garfield, and so did my other sister. Only, only one of us went to Sure in Montebello, ah. and that's my brother. Yeah. And they the reason. Younger or? No, I'm the youngest of four. Okay. So it's my oldest sister who attended USC. My brother who went to Sher High School and is now a mechanic for the city of Los Angeles. Nice. He went to uh, UTI right after high school. My middle sister, Monica, who attended USC and is in social work. So,
1: and then I'm the youngest. But my oldest sister paved the way. And let me ask you, what what year did your oldest sister graduate? Nineteen eighty three. Oh, okay, so she was before me. And then what about Monica? Eighty nine. Oh, so Monica and I did overlap a little yes. bit, but even still, I was a, probably a senior when she was a. Uh, I can't do the math, but right. anyway, she yeah was you still. were when she was a sophomore. Yeah, we when, started in tenth grade. at that Yeah, one. yes. Oh wow! So yeah. So okay. So yeah. and they all went to USC.
0: Both my oldest sister and my and Monica, my middle sister, went to wow. USC. Wow,
1: that's impressive.
0: Yeah, and they both went on for higher degrees. My oldest sister has a doctor degree in education, and my middle sister has two masters in public health and social serv- wow. social work. So, and then uh, you came along. I came along, and I always my sister, my middle sister, calls me the overachiever. Really? And obviously, yes. I obviously had their example. Yeah. So, and I and my parents also supported education. Yeah. And although they neither of them had finished elementary school in Mexico. Both of them had a love for learning. Mm. They read. And so that was a huge advantage. Yeah. Because we get that a lot. I don't know if you get that, but I've gotten that. Like, how could a kid from the projects become a lawyer? How could a kid from a college go to Berkeley? I went to Berkeley Law School. Um, and as we know, Sonia Sotomayor grew up in housing projects, too. Yeah. yeah. And so, you it's know. A, so It, it, it happens. <laughs> it happens, and it's possible, and it's access, and it's support. Yeah. And so I felt that. I always say though yes
1: but I'm just gonna say like there is a mindset my, because my you know my mom didn't have college education either she she learned she whatever schooling she had she had in Mexico but she knew enough to know that her kids should go to college right yeah and so my
0: parents were both both valued education both they both valued learning so my dad was very academic he was, was he? from Matamoros in, in Mexico from a poor family but most of his siblings did go to advanced mm-hmm. um, degrees or engineers. One of my uncles was the director of the Polytechnic Institute, I think, in Mexico. Really? Yeah, but my, my dad had a disability and he allowed that to impede him. Mm-hmm. And so nonetheless, he was self-taught. And we would call him Niño Sabelo Todo because <laughs> you could talk about any subject and he knew it. And so he knew Russian history. He loved quoting Oscar Wilde. Really? He quoted. So, oh, wow. That's so, funny. Yeah, so Juana Inez de la Cruz was his favorite poet. So we had books at home. Yeah. And I, I emphasize that, how important that was for our upbringing because I recognize those differences. Having two parents at home. Yeah. It may have not been the most... Ideal situation. Many times, of course, we lived in housing projects. We had financial limitations. We had
1: mm-hmm. social
0: economic issues faced by many. But the fact that we had this love of learning
1: mm-hmm.
0: and exposure, and being in the housing projects, we were exposed to different um, programs.
1: Yeah,
0: at the park, at different different activities. We did. Monica and I did dance early mm-hmm. on. We were in sports. We went to trips, and so knowing that there was so much out there
1: yeah, which is you know, which is remarkable because certainly, I think people think, well, you grew up in East LA, there weren't these kinds of <clears throat> opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's what's remarkable about what's remarkable about it is that you took advantage you and your family took advantage of those opportunities. We
0: did. And I think my mom, and that's then probably going to lead to why I became a lawyer. She was a leader in our community, mm. and she was respected, and she had a strong voice. And yeah. to this day, both my parents have passed to this day, I say, to anybody who, when people remark, usually my clients, of how, what a strong presence I am, what a strong voice, and that I give them the, the, my advocacy. Yeah. And I empower them to speak up, particularly women, particularly yeah. women in vulnerable positions. Yep. And so I say, if you think I'm strong, my mom was a hundred times yeah. stronger than I and I've been saying lately. I said she didn't knock on doors, she broke down doors. Yeah. So if there was an issue at school, for example, to access or to a certain grade or a misunderstanding. My mom didn't let the fact that she didn't speak English deter her to advocate for
1: her children. Wow. That is that is pretty remarkable. Yeah. I did my mom was my mom was always a force in terms of work. Like she always worked. She always taught me that work ethic but I was the youngest from my siblings by a lot of years Um, so I got that sort of like education from my oldest sister Arcelia who came to this country when she was she was already older she came to this country I think she was probably like I don't even know I shouldn't even be saying this because I don't know but it was like between 10 and 15 years old so a little bit older right but and in the 70s she graduated from Garfield went to Cal State L.A. With, you know, not even mm. probably 100% fluent in English And eventually became a teacher That's awesome Yep, and she would, she's the one that would read to me like, I just always have visions of her bringing me into her room That she shared with my other sister and reading to me Yes um, mm. So books were always also really present in my, in my childhood Not so much for my mom Because my mom was watching novelas um, And working, my mom was working But for my sister, Arcelia, who just loved books, you know
0: I know, and that's the thing. My mom, my mom worked, and she's worked since she was very young, but by the time she had her family, what I remember as being the youngest, that her jobs had been taking care of other kids, mm. selling products like yeah. Stanley products oh, or yeah, yeah. Avon or yeah, doing things like that that would allow her to raise her kids, And whereas my dad worked. Um, but both of them were present in different ways, so our mother would made it a point for example and i have memories of this just like you do she would get la opinion Uh. would sit us down would have us read and kind of understand it and write down sentences in spanish my oldest sister who's eight years older than i she was a huge influence so i have memories of her reading to me reading the golden golden books right the stories Yeah, 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 yeah 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 and so and she would sit my other sister and i down and she would go through words and test us and do Math with us early on, so by the time that I started kindergarten, Spanish had been my first language. But by the time I started kindergarten, I was fluent in English again. I'm the youngest, yeah, before. yeah, um, and knew a lot of the principles, like math, math-wise, yeah. English. So I did. I had. A, I, now I will say that I had a huge advantage, yeah. and so I think my oldest sister was like a naturally born teacher. She teaches at a community college now, yeah. and so she's always. Done that. She does that for her kids, she does yeah for I the mean, nieces that, and
1: nephews. It's just a huge advantage, right? It yeah, is. I mean, my I did not speak English going to um starting school in here. And I mean, I was born here, so yeah, I didn't I didn't speak English, and that's largely because my again I was the fir- I was the youngest in my family, but the first born in the United States. Mm-hmm. So my siblings and my mom came here. At, you know, they came here, they were all older, and so we spoke Spanish at home. And to this day, because not a lot of us have kids, <laughs> you know, it's usually the kids that bring in the English, we speak Spanish almost exclusively at my house. Right. Because it's just, that's that's the language we've always spoken spoken at home. And it was important for my parents to, although
0: my dad had, they both had taken English classes, my mom just didn't grasp it. Yeah. And living in East Estela, she really didn't need it. Whereas my dad, who was in the workforce... Knew it better, but we spoke Spanish exclusively at home. Yeah. I mean, again, I among the siblings, yes, we spoke English, but we didn't have a situation where our parents were speaking to us in Spanish and we responded in English. That was never
1: a oh, situation. Oh yeah, I mean, my mom, yeah, my mom doesn't speak English to this day, you know. So <laughs> no, but you know, there are yeah. people who do that. I know, I know, I see it because yeah. I see it with my friends, you know. Right. Um, I see it with my friends' kids speaking to their gra- to their grandparents, right? Like they answer in in English.
0: Yes. Yeah. And so for. For our parents, it was uh, it was important that we never do that. It, yeah. When I visited a tia in Mexico, many years later when I was in college, and she was pleasantly surprised that my sister, my sister had also gone um, to that trip, she was pleasantly surprised that we spoke Spanish so well, and she was that's great because your dad said he never wanted bochos as kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, and he would correct us all the time. Again, oh, the yeah. niño sabe lo todo. Uh-huh. So you would you cor- would want to correct people in East LA stories that had signs that were not grammatically correct or spelling. And he said that's being so snobby.
1: <laughs> oh, so, that was happen- That you know that happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. You know.
0: but um, no. So what I was saying in terms of our educational journey was I had a lot of positive influences in home at home, and then in school. Yeah. As a, as a result of, um, I mean, again, my mom was very involved. I think I was blessed with excellent teachers, even mm-hmm. starting in elementary school. Yeah. I attended a school that was called Riggin, and now it's called Hamasaki, um, which most of the project kids went to right on First Street. On By the First. freeway, parallel to the sixty freeway, the yellow oh,
1: yeah, building yeah, yeah. near
0: Belvedere Park. Oh, right, right. So we would oh, walk yeah. through the park, right, uh-huh. cross the street from the project, walk through the park, very small school. Yeah. Again, the majority of the of um, the kids were from the projects, right? And so we were really close knit because yeah. we're from the same community. And um, Mr. Hamasaki was our principal, and he was excellent. And after, I think he may have passed away either my last year at Garfield or shortly after. And the parents, mainly the moms rallied, went to the school district, and asked for a name change, too. Oh, wow. Yeah. He oh, wow. That gave me chills. Yeah. So, it was a, it's a very beautiful story. It and is, so,
1: because
0: to have that kind of
1: impact, you know?
0: Yeah. And so, he. Um, we had other great teachers there, and I just, the other thing, I think, for educational wise I had friends who attended that school. There were two cousins. One went to Stanford, went to, one to Berkeley mm-hmm. for undergrad. We were talking about college in elementary school yeah so it's important of like the seed and the example and back then this was in the 80s Brooke Shields was I think she had gone to Princeton or was wanted to right Yeah. and so one of my friends Becky she's like I want (laughs) to go to Princeton because Brooke Shields went there (laughs) Brooke Shields was a big deal back then in the 80s (laughs) (laughs) so I didn't know what Princeton was and Becky actually got into Princeton as, uh as well as all the other schools that she applied but she ended up going to Stanford
1: oh she did yeah and where did you, well, I want to talk, well, I just yeah. want to talk, we'll get to where you went to school after Garfield, but I, I do want to talk a little bit about Mr. Escalante, about yes. Jaime Escalante and the math yes. program. So did you have him throughout your career at, at Garfield? Because that's usually what he did. He brought you in from like, yes. what used to be the 10th grade is where you when you started high school yes. back then. So I started Algebra two
0: with him in 10th grade, mm-hmm. did the summer trigonometry and yep. math analysis yep. at East LA College. Uh, junior year, Calculus AB. Mm-hmm. Senior, I did Calculus BC, but I had the other teacher, Mr. Jimenez.
1: How did that happen? I think his class. Mr. Escalante, oh. No,
0: no, we were fine. He was mad that I did that. His, I think the fourth, I had been in leadership. I think fourth period was leadership. I think that's. i remember that and that would have been calculus bc with mr Scalante. and so it didn't fit my schedule
1: Ooh, he must have been really oh, upset he was, with he you he was very upset yeah
0: he's like yeah. why do you need that class that's not you don't need <laughs> totally. it for anything that's a waste of time totally yeah he was upset um it was a good experience to take calculus from Mr. Jimenez. I yeah. got to learn different concepts that I hadn't learned.
1: <laughs> but yes, I had I had crossed the line with Mr. Scott. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he was a very like um, like loyalty was really important to him, and he totally held grudges, right? <laughs> but I, I mean, overall, I think we were fine. Yeah, I'm sure. I will say like because I, I I also had this I had the same from tenth grade did the trigonometry calculus AB calculus BC, but my claim to fame and I will like be talking about this until the day I go I was there when they made the movie right yeah I was I was there when he, when he walked in and said oh they're gonna make a movie about me and you know he was you know he was a bit of a joker right yes. so we were all thought like we just all thought well this guy is, has really lost it now he's crazy <laughs> like I'm gonna make a movie about him why they're gonna make a movie about him and then it where James almost started showing up in our classroom, and then Lou Diamond Phillips started showing up in our classroom, and we were like, oh my God. Yeah. It was amazing, so amazing. I could watch the
0: movie. My son has seen the movie. Oh, has he? My nieces and nephew have seen the movie. I will still tear up and uh, cry. Yeah. And so the last time I, I saw it, it was in the last year sometime, and my husband and my kid were watching it. Just It was just on. Yeah. And, I don't know, there was a part, and I just started crying. Oh. And just what an impact he made in our lives. And my mother didn't trust anybody. She always said, in terms of men, que el diablo nunca duerme. and you can't trust any man, you can't trust a, a teacher, you can't stay after school, but with Mr. Scalante, she ha- trusted him. Did she? So staying after school, going to Saturdays, him driving us home yeah. in his van. Yeah. Um, was and he would go into the projects go to the fire road we lived right off the fire road my mom would have burritos ready for him because she's like you work so
1: hard yeah i'm sure you haven't even even had dinner i mean his impact the impact that he ended up leaving in the east LA community i don't i can't even imagine how like wide his impact is it was just i mean he just gave us i don't what is it that he did he I will tell you, like, the year that they were making the movie, he wasn't even around that much, you know, and, and I don't even know how it is we learned calculus, um, and I couldn't tell you anything about calculus as I did here today, but I do know that I, I did pass the AP tests, both of them, and I never had to take math in college. And that's wonderful. Yeah.
0: Hell yeah. I did have <laughs> to <laughs> take I, I passed the AB one with a three, mm-hmm. the BC one I didn't pass, and... I had to take, and I chose at Occidental College. Yeah. I chose to take calculus the first year because it was fresh in my mind. And yeah. I did well. Yeah. I got an A, and I learned it in a new way.
1: <laughs> and I'm sh- probably the proper way. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no offense, Mr. Escalate, but you know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause in, in do you, and I don't know if this was the case when you were around, but like after, because you took the AP test, like... At least, if I can remember, it was earlier. It was earlier than the end of the year, so it was like maybe April, and you still had like May and June, right? right? And like pretty much after you took the AP test, like there was nothing left to do. He would pull out a ping pong table, yeah. and put it in the you room. play Uno or play yeah. board games or yeah, something. He yeah, you would take out all the board games. There was no no more studying for like a month and a half. It was right. awesome. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that was the perk, right? That was the perk, but not all the AP people, all AP teachers, were doing that, you know that's would, true and I think that was fine because we
0: would study Saturday we would stay yeah, after school that's true and so um, no he he made a huge impact and yeah. I think obviously he also put us on the map and so mm-hmm. Pete, when anybody I mean most people know who he is regardless of yeah, even background right.
1: so so many years later people right. still know I, yeah it's still I'm telling you I milk that all the time I <laughs> I re- somebody posted I think Lou Diamond Phillips posted something about it on Twitter about like maybe it was the anniversary of the movie or something like that and I happened to, of course, because I milk it people, this is what I do I responded and said, you know, I was a student of Escalante and you know, I was there when they made the movie and then somebody contacted me, a teacher contacted me from Kentucky um, and he asked me to speak to because I think they did like a movie thing Mm -hmm. where like a group of teachers watched movies that they found like educational and they had watched (laughs) to deliver and he asked me to speak to them Um, And of course, are you kidding me? Of course, I did it. I will. I mean, it's ridiculous how much I milk it. You know. Yeah.
0: Well, I knew there was a book being written, and I don't know what happened to that. Um, Back in the day, or now? After his death. Oh, really? There was a journalist. His name is his first name is Luis Torres, maybe. Mm. And he, I did some talks around that time. Did you? So there was. um, I did actually. Yeah, I did a interview. Around the time of his death? Right, around the time I of his death. Too, yeah. right. I did, too, yeah. Right. So there was something I did out mm-hmm. in Cover City, and it was like it came out on Facebook, on Facebook or something. And it yeah. was hema Leyva, my class, and Angela Fajardo, also my year. Um, Hema's an architect, and I think Angela's like a school administrator. And um, what else did I do? Oh, I did a panel at PCC.
1: Oh, did you? And
0: then they had a... Exhibit there for him.
1: Oh, I remember that. Right. And yeah. I think
0: this gentleman, we saw us, I think he was a moderator. Uh, so I don't know what happened to the book, but that was some t- That was probably in
1: 2010. That he passed away? I think so. Oh, my. Wow. Time <laughs> just keeps flying by. Yeah. It. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was an amazing experience to be there, to be his student, um, to be, because he just pushed you and gave you, like, just the confidence to Feel like you could do it. You could go to college. I mean, he wa- he only wanted you to study sciences. <laughs> he didn't like any of the, like the liberal arts majors. But um, he just gave you this confidence of like, yeah, you can do it. Just do it, you know.
0: He did tell me. He said that he knew that I favored the humanities, mm-hmm. and so he said um, he said math is going to help you think differently, and that's what it does. Mm-hmm. And so he said, minor in math. Take math in college. <laughs> And I mean, so I use math so much in, you? as a
1: lawyer that you won't even believe it. I won't believe it because I'm always trying to avoid math.
0: Yeah. I just, I handle, because I I handle mainly family law cases. Yeah. And there you're having issues with child support, spousal support, financial division. Mm.
1: Yeah. Daily.
0: Right now. I was doing all math. Yeah. Um, percentages and some of the um, division of property and reimbursements and there's 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 even formulas that we have to go through,
1: I mean, just you speaking and I'm already getting clouded over because I'm like, uh, yeah, but for me it feels it's actually um it keeps me on my toes, yeah, 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 for
0: sure, yeah, and I so...
1: I mean, I have to do math too sometimes too, right, when I'm negotiating settlements or at mediations, mm-hmm. we're trying to settle a case and I have to figure out like mm-hmm. you know how it's all going to work out, but right. it's pretty basic stuff, so I'm not doing. Although I will tell you know where I have to use math and it it, it I'm totally not I I is it, in wage and hour cases yes um, where you have to calculate like wage and hour cases meaning like I represent workers who haven't been properly paid overtime or who haven't been allowed to take rest and meal periods or rest and break periods um, or what is it rest and meal periods yeah their breaks and their and their lunch. I mean, you have to do math for all of those things. You have to figure out time and a half and penalties, and so yeah, okay, that math does kick in sometimes. Yes, but I don't know. I can't tell you that I like it. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, I find that sometimes I have an advantage Mm -hmm. because there's so many lawyers that say, "Oh no, I'm a lawyer because I can't do math." Exactly. And or they get intimidated by it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, especially in your area, right? Right. Because, as you said, you practice family law. I do. Is that primarily what you practice? That's
0: primarily what I practice. I started off doing civil litigation. Actually, when I, as a law student, what I wanted to do was educational law, Did education you? law, and like advocacy for parents and students. I didn't know how that would translate. And so I knew there were organizations like MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um, ACLU, and they were doing impact litigation. So I had interned for MALDEF when I was in law school in San Francisco. I had interned for um, El Centro Legal de la Raza in Oakland, Mm -hmm. and there was an attorney there who had graduated from Berkeley who was focusing on those educational issues, but unfortunately she was out of the office at the time that I was there.
1: Uh, And
0: so then I ended up doing stuff like landlord-tenant rights, mainly. Um, But in any event, I started at a firm that represented school districts with the hope that I would get information from that side and take it to a direct service type of representation. But my career led me to civil litigation because that firm ended up closing down after a year. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Okay, so let's, 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 yeah. okay, let's backtrack a little bit, and we'll get to the loss. Because after Garfield, you went to Occidental College here yes. in L.A., right? Yes. Um, right away? Right away. Yeah. And what did you study at Oxy? English literature and Spanish literature. And how was that for you, Araceli? Was the transition from Garfield in East L.A. to Occidental... Um, in LA, was was it a smooth transition for you? Yes, I think it was very embracing. I um,
0: Occidental at the time had its first African American president. Now it has its second. Wow. Currently, and just recently, so the first one, and, and it's been around since I think it's eighteen eighty seven, similar to USA. I think it's eighty eight. Mm-hmm. So it's been around for a very long time. And President Slaughter, and I don't know if it. Preceded him, or if he brought it in, this is the first African American president. um, He was promoting multiculturalism, and he was promoting bringing in the diversity of to have Occidental be reflective of the diversity of Los Angeles, not only in terms of color but also social economic status. Right. So at the time that I entered Occidental, they had been promoting this mission by recruiting from. Public schools in areas like East Los Angeles, right. Bico Union, Pacoima, parts of the San yeah. Fernando Valley, South LA, and so obviously kids who had, you know, stellar academic records and right. were well-rounded, but in addition, um, were um, in these particular areas of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So there were already there were Garfield students at Occidental yep. who had gone. There was actually two who had gone to. Recruit on their own. To Garfield? To Garfield. So Do you remember who they were? Yeah, it's Estela Don Lucas and um, Rosario Gutierrez. Mm. They were both class of 1990. Mm. And on their own, they wow. they saw. you know, they said um, they went to the college center with Mr. Morozic. Yeah. And they recruited, and um, there was about, f- uh, maybe there were more of us, but I know that four of us decided to visit. They invited us. They mm-hmm. they
1: initiated everything. So they And not sent by Occidental on their own. On their own.
0: Wow. And so we stayed over. They arranged for it at the, there was a multicultural hall. They arranged for us to stay with people they arranged for us to go to a Mecha meeting they arranged for us to go to classes you slept you slept there we slept there oh man so they planned the sleepover weekend for us what a wonderful opportunity right and so each one of those four ended up attending Occidental even though we had considered other schools our first
1: choice and had gotten gotten into those other schools yeah really? so my
0: first choice was Bryn Mawr in Pennsylvania yeah, and so I did get in, and yeah. Smith, I had also gotten in. Wow. Well. So I had been flown to visit Bryn Mawr after or prior, I think prior. I forget. Yeah, but I remember not liking it as much as
1: Occidental. Mm-hmm. Well, I, 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 my connection to Occidental, I don't have a direct one, but my friend, my very good friend Olga Garcia, yes. went to went to Occidental when we graduated from, from Garfield in 1987, and she would have graduated from Oxy then in. She went 87. She would have graduated from Occidental, but she transferred. Oh. Yeah, she she left, she left and went to UC Santa Cruz. Oh, okay, that's and, right. Yeah, and that's where she ended up graduating from. And I think you
0: know I know Olga from
1: Upper Brown. Yeah,
0: I do. So I was in the Upper Brown program, mm-hmm. and she was my teacher for poetry.
1: Yeah, yeah, because yes. she's a poet here in L.A. Yeah. Yes. No, yeah, so Olga and I met in, at Garfield High School, so that's my connection to Oxy. Um, right. But I think there were also other Garfield... People from my year who went to um, it's an excellent school. Uh, yeah, it's excellent and it's beautiful. But I, I, with my <laughs> my experience with Occidental, again, like th- listen, we're, you know, we're not young, right? Young at heart, or I don't know, whatever. But yeah. we, this is, Oak and I graduated from Garfield in nineteen eighty seven, and when we knew she was gonna go to Occidental, we were like, oh, let's go visit. <laughs> we had like no idea how to get there, even though it's not that far from. Where we grew up, it's not that far from Garfield, but we just, we just didn't know. We didn't have a concept of like much outside of our area. You know? Right, and I didn't
0: have a concept of that particular area at all.
1: Yeah, at all, because it's it. What is it considered? Uh, Highland Park. It's it's considered Eagle Rock. Eagle Rock, yeah. yeah. We so, had such a hard time finding <laughs> Occidental. It was pretty funny.
0: Yeah, no. So I just think for me, I mean, I I have my good friends still from yeah. that school i have very good memories yeah good opportunities i think that there was during my time there they had their first latino student body president mm. and, and you know that we had a big we established a big presence there. Yeah. even though we were probably about 14 percent um we established a presence i think it was you know, I you know President Obama attended that school, mm-hmm. and it he talked about how he was politicized and he was yeah. very involved in the anti-apartheid movement and how he found his voice and identity there. He ended up transferring to Columbia, but nonetheless, he talks yeah. in his books about how what an impact Occidental made.
1: A lot of, I mean, a lot of people I know have have gone to Occidental and you know graduated from Occidental. It's it's an excellent school. Right. So I think I mean for me the fact that it was small. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt
0: like I had a lot of support. Yeah. And so, and maybe having been exposed to colleges because of my sisters, I yeah. was less intimidated.
1: Yeah.
0: Having gone to Bryn Mawr was a whole different
1: Oh, I'm sure. Level. Been, yeah. Yeah, it would have been a, well, yeah, a totally. Right. Different it experience. would have been
0: a different experience. But I think Occidental, like I said, it was embracing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I went to USC out of, out of, uh, out, after I graduated from Garfield and I failed miserably. I, I dropped out before the end of the first year. It was just... I just was not prepared culturally for it. Um, and again, USC is maybe, what, like a few miles from where we grew up, and I just couldn't I couldn't deal with it. Which is, you know, I mean, obviously, for me it wasn't... I mean, but, you know, I know there are plenty of people who went from Garfield to USC and, and were able to succeed. I was not. Well, my sister went through. I mean, yeah. my middle sister. I mean, I... I was
0: 10 when my oldest sister went there. Yeah. So I knew, but I didn't know, right? So I couldn't relate because we're of different generations. So when she she decided to go to USC over my mother's objection, she wanted her to go to Cal State Mm. LA because it was just over the hill. Yeah. She did not allow her to dorm. Oh, she didn't. She didn't. And Uh. she did not drive at the time. So she would take two buses Mm. to get to USC. She would come home late at night. And she, but the situation was different once. I was ready to go to school where my mom was accepting of me going back east.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or where my other
0: sister ended up dorming. And she, so I knew more of my middle sister's experience because we're only two years difference. Right, right. And so she also she, went to USC. She also went to USC. She loved it, but then, yes, she faced a lot of racism and well, classism.
1: Because USC in the 80s, I mean, it wasn't, it was not occidental. Right. They were not trying to diversify their right. their student population race-wise or social, socially economic-wise. Yes. Um, yeah, so it was a really, I mean, I, for me, I was like, oh my God. Right. And who are all these people and all their fancy cars? And I was just, right. I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't adjust. Yeah, it was very different. And so among
0: my classmates and my friends who are from, whether they're, from, you know, so four of us went from Garfield. Yeah. right, yeah. The same year, and I knew them. And then we had people from Roosevelt. We had mm-hmm. people from Franklin. And yeah. it was, and then other, other folks, you know, and most of us, like most of my Latina friends, nobody drove. Because we just yeah. didn't have access. Right. Um, we would take the bus to go home, or Ooh. our parents would pick us up, or we would rely on other people's cars, and we didn't drive until after we graduated. Because, people, this was
1: before Uber. <laughs> yes. There, wow, before Uber.
0: There was a shuttle that Occidental had on the weekends, and they would take us to O-Town, Pasadena. Oh, would they? It was great. It was free. <laughs> and then oh, they
1: actually had a
0: bangle bus you know like a the tiger Bengal, and they would um, like if you wanted to go to nearby eateries or something oh really <laughs> so yeah it was it was uh, it was a, it was interesting it was a great experience yeah. and it the population at that point were sixteen hundred for undergrad, so it was a class of like four hundred.
1: Oh man, and, that's tiny.
0: And having majored in English, those classes were like I could have maybe ten to fifteen people in a class. Oh, yikes.
1: No, I was a I was a journalism major at USC mm. and I always like always blame my failure on a journalism teacher. I had like a basic journalism class, I don't know journalism 101, and uh, she she told me this was my first semester that um, that I couldn't write and mm-hmm. that I should think about changing my major. And you know, she kind of broke me. You know, I was like, oh my god, you know. But did you want to go into print journalism or broadcast? You know what I wanted to do? I wanted to be a sports writer. <gasps> That's awesome. Because I loved love love loved, loved the Lakers and I love the Dodgers and I loved football um football american football i i that's what i wanted to be but i was a lakers fanatic i I, loved the lakers yeah were you yeah
0: and we were just my husband and i were watching that show the oh yes yeah
1: i'm totally watching it i love it i mean those the showtime they, they when they were like at their height you know with magic and kareem yeah that was my jam i ditched school to go to like a parade and People knew not to call, you know, back in the day when you called on you know, landlines, people knew not to call you, and the Laker games were on. I was a fanatic. Yeah. It was huge. I remember when I
0: went to the Upper Brown Program, which was also very influential, and this was at East Valley College. Yeah. So you apply when you're in ninth grade, and then you're going to start during that summer. Mm-hmm. And so there was a meeting, like an orientation meeting, which coincided with one of the playoff games. <laughs> I was so upset that I had to be there. I remember that. And I remember having that t-shirt when they won. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. I would wear that. T-shirt. And I freaking hated the Celtics yes. like with a passion, you know? Like, ah. Uh. My husband does not wear green,
0: <laughs> and does not want anything green—not even a toothbrush—because <laughs> of his hate for the Celtics. Oh, I
1: love that! You know, you yeah. hold on to it. Even still, like sometimes I see Magic with Larry Bird, and I'm like, whatever. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and then I was, my husband and I were watching that show yesterday, and we were like thinking good times also when they, now with Kobe and Shaq. Yeah. yeah. And what was it, three times or four times? No, three times. Three, three. yeah. And so, we would hang out with a bunch of Oxy people. And this is already, mm. I already had graduated. And we went to a friend. She actually lives in East LA. One of the people who recruited. And she was, it was always just a party. Yeah. And so it was like, he goes, oh man, we had good times.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, the the Shaq and Kobe years, I still watching, but I was not, not as much as a fanatic. My fanatic years were like. The, the 80s. Showtime. Yeah. Showtime, yeah. Showtime. When Magic announced that he was HIV positive, it was like one of the most devastating days in my whole life. Me like, too, I cried. I cr- I mean, cr- I mean I sobbed for yeah. like days. It was so heartbreaking. Because of course, you didn't know a whole lot about AIDS back then, but just like him not being able to play anymore, it was just so heartbreaking I me mean, to this day. I hate Carl Malone because Carl Malone like raised all these kind of issues mm. about him coming back and playing right. with him. You know, so I'm just like, Carl mm, Malone whatever. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The no, mailman, is I yeah. yeah, so. with the Utah
1: Jets. I hated him. So this was, and then he ended up playing for the Lakers. I know. <sighs> I so just this, saw that. I remembered that when I was, because I was watching the documentary Legacy. I was like, oh, that's right.
0: He played for the Lakers. So that was, that announcement came, I think, in 91 or 92. Around there, yeah. Right, yeah. 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 I remember yeah. I was at Occidental and I think I, yeah, I just, I remember that vividly. There's certain things that you'll never yeah. forget.
1: I'll never forget that. The other, the other thing about the Lakers that I re- all will always remember is when the um, Rodney King police officers police officers who beat him were found not guilty. And there was, you know, an uprising, a riot, a riot whatever you want to call it. I was at a Laker game that night. Mm, mm-hmm. April 29, 1982. Yeah. And I remember them announcing. And I, I think they you see it a little bit on the documentary announcing, like, you couldn't go home. Yeah. You couldn't go um so towards South Central, where this right. was at the Forum, um, you had to go to the four hundred five. Yeah, they were, wow. That, yeah, they wouldn't let you go that way. And I just remember coming home on the ten because I was in East LA, coming home t- on the t- on the ten on, and on the right hand side there was just fires, all over the place. Yeah, I I remember we
0: had an event. It was April. At Occidental we would have Semana de la Raza and then it turned out to be like a mesa de la raza because we just had so many events mm-hmm. whether it was like festivities or talks and lectures. So we, again, with that presence we expanded and we were at a, it was called Sycamore Glen. It was a, and that's when we heard. Yeah. And it's so devastated. I remember and everybody was got riled up like, let's go. So there was a group of people who yeah. went to South yeah. LA. I was, my mom was very overprotective. Yeah. So even though I was uh you know, always down for the cause. I called my mom to tell her that I was
1: gone. <laughs> and she she was like, "Hell no!
0: <laughs> you stay right there." Mm-hmm. She said, "Monica, who was at SC, she's she's trying to and at get that out. I think that year she was living at home. She's she's trying to get out yeah. of there, and yeah. you're telling me you're going to go over there. You need to stay put." Yeah. And of course, I followed her instruction.
1: <laughs> I didn't. <I'm, laughs> Of course you did. I
0: was terrified. (laughs) I tell you, she was a force to be reckoned with.
1: That's so awesome, honestly. Yeah, no, that, that, I remember also um, just prior to the verdict coming out, I was at UCLA, by this time, so I dropped out of USC and then went to ELAC, Mm -hmm. East LA College, and then I transferred to UCLA. And so that year, I was in a Malcolm X class at UCLA. Mm -hmm. And of course, but you, you just felt, like you felt... Like, something's gonna happen if these mm-hmm. guys get off, you know, like, it was just so, like... Palpable. Palpable. You could just feel it, you know, because it was just so outrageous. Yeah, and I
0: um, I remember that we had these, I forgot what they would call them, but we would have these um, talks, or open mics, right? Oh. Open mics in the quad at Occidental, and then there was all kinds of crazy crap that was being said by people. And there was a lot of infighting, and it was. Oh, so but again, yeah. we were in a very privileged position, right? I mean, a group of us ended up like going out to, well, after yeah. things had subsided, to do the cleanup and do stuff like Did that. Did you?
1: Yeah. Oh, okay, I didn't do that. Yeah, yeah. I do remember that when the after the video, you know, with the beating um, came out, um, I do remember going to the Parker Center, mm-hmm. back where that that was where the LAPD was headquartered. And I, I used to go to the protests there to try to get Daryl Gates out, the chief mm-hmm. of police. And I used to go to those routinely. Um, but yeah, I was, you know, those were crazy times. Which repeat and repeat. Which repeat and repeat and repeat. And you mm-hmm. wonder, like, I don't know. Yeah. And there is certainly more talk now about, you know, police departments and their funding. and right. Their tactics. But I don't know, will anything ever really change? Yeah, I know.
0: I think it's uh, a power dynamic, for sure, and people get it wrong all the time, and then we see it oh, in our... Yeah.
1: yeah, no, I know. I mean, I've done a few um, civil right, you know, police abuse cases, mm. you know, the like the Rampart scandal. Mm. Um, I, I worked on a lot of those cases. Um, and so, you know, one of the... one. Of, I just want to say, one of the interesting things as you get older is all of these things that... You know, people are watching documentaries on. <laughs> like you're like, oh, I lived through that. <laughs> like you know what I mean? Like right. I live. Oh, I lived through that. Or yeah. like you know, you just see all these things that some kids have never even where they weren't around. You know. Right. And I'm like, oh yeah, I lived through that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, no, it's true. And I think that when I was in, um, I always loved history too. Yeah. And I would, I was amazed when I how did, how did we allow something like Vietnam to happen, or how did we allow this? You know. What Was going on in the '60s in terms of rights or slavery anything? I anything? Mean, How then, does it happen? But then you
1: ask, today. But then it happens in your face. Right. <laughs> exactly. Like, you know, what do you do about it? Right. And you now know, you re- I know.
0: As you grow up, you realize it's 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 tough because it's you have there's so much to yeah. focus on. Yeah. And then you have to choose.
1: Well, you also have to live life, you know. Right, right, right. Make right. a living, and you have to raise you know, fam, you raise know, be families. families. Yeah. Anyways, so you went to Oxy. You love Doxy. It sounds like I did. Of course, it has its challenges, but again,
0: I mean, I would, I would say that I was supported in many ways. Yeah, it sounds like that, right? Right. I mean, they had, and this is important, and that's where I could talk about the difference between Berkeley. We we'll talk about that later. Yeah, is that they had. A multicultural summer institute, which was a bridge program yeah. for mainly people of color, not exclusively to people of color. Um, but we had a rigorous curriculum. Yeah. As a starter to that transition. We had exposure to LA and different parts of it and diversity and going to plays and going to Ethiopian restaurants and having talks and opening things up so where things like what we're talking I mean, we discussed things that mattered. Right. And then we had a lot of fun. Yeah. And again, the small classes, the fact that there were other like Latinos who were in similar positions. Mm -hmm. Because later, when I went to law school, there was the majority. There was a lot of people who had privilege, yeah, economic privilege, namely.
1: Oh, I know exactly what you mean. Because while I didn't have that at USC, and I commuted to UCLA, so I didn't have that sense of community there either. But at Loyola, there were when I got there, there were a group of us that came from similar backgrounds similar socioeconomic um, backgrounds, immigrant families, and we all clang clang to each other, clung to each other, and that's how we made it through, you know? Right. Yeah. And so that's how, I mean, I felt at
0: Occidental, and so there were a lot of, the fact that classrooms were so small, Yeah. and we got to know professors well. So my letters of recommendations for law school were very personal. I didn't read them. But I know from yeah. ultimately someone from missions committee. They're like, "Yeah, your application stood out because you had the relationship with your professors."
1: Right. And so then you went to uh, you went to law school at UC Berkeley, Berkeley. which Berk- that's not Hastings, right? No, it's, it used to be called, called Boulton. Yes, Boulton. But they don't call that anymore. They, they just they call it
0: Berkeley School of Law.
1: Berkeley School of Law. And is, was that your? Is that where you wanted to go? Well,
0: let me tell you, I, and, and you may or not, may not remember this. And it may or may not have happened. No, it did happen, but I don't know if it was you. Okay. So I had... <laughs> <laughs> suspense. All right. I had applied to... I applied to four schools. UCLA was my coveted school. Yeah. Everybody's, right? Yeah. I mean... UCLA was my my the school I wanted to go to. I applied to Berkeley and Stanford... I loved. I had done a fellowship at Stanford during my junior year at Occidental. I had wanted to go there for undergrad. Yeah. I hadn't visited until later, but I loved it. Mm -hmm. Didn't get into Stanford. Got into UCLA. Got into Loyola. So that was the fourth school. Loyola Loyola was my safety school. Yeah. UCLA coveted. (laughs) Berkeley and Stanford were, like, hopeful but doubtful, in my mind. And Loyola was my safety. Mm-hmm. So I got into Loyola. I was offered a scholarship. So I visited on my own, and yeah. I wandered into La Raza students' office, and I was with my now husband, and I think it was you. Yeah. And I, set up I said, because I was always in that office. This was in 1996. Yeah. I was there, and I had gotten in. I had gone to the admissions office and talked to them about the scholarship, blah blah blah, and then I go in, I check it out. And I think it was you. But somebody at la raza asked me, well, where else did you get in? And I said, UCLA and Berkeley. And you said, what are you doing here? <laughs> Go to UCLA or Berkeley.
1: Okay, that sounds exactly like <laughs> something I would say. <laughs> so it was probably me. Because, yeah, I mean, I love Loyola. Love, yeah. I love Loyola. And I, love, I have my, some of my best friends or people that I met at Loyola. But come on, like UCLA and Berkeley are just. First of all, they're less expensive. They're just more prestigious schools. You just, it, they just are.
0: So I had been to Berkeley before, but then I visited and I made the decision to go. And um, I, um, it was at a time when I think what Senate Bill One had already passed, so it was the end of affirmative action in the UC system. Oh yeah. And Proposition Two Hundred Nine was on the ballot. Yes. And so that first year was really intense because of SB1 having passed, they put an end to the programs that they used to have.
1: Well, so le- let me let's let, let me be clear cuz I'm going to I could pretend that I know exactly what you're talking about, but S- SB was the that UCLA couldn't consider race and gender in those categories anymore.
0: UC Regents. So UC the UC Regents. Regents had made a decision via Senate Bill 1. That they couldn't consider race, okay, in terms of admissions, in terms of programs, and they took it to an
1: extreme. Yikes! And that so, passed.
0: And that passed. And that passed before
1: 209. Right, because 209 would have been like, you couldn't. You, affirmative action was was out loud across the board. Yes,
0: which ultimately passed. Which passed. Yes, and that was in that was after I started. So in 90, 1996. That's when I entered, and that's when I got in, right? Yeah. SB1 had passed, Mm -hmm. but not Proposition 209. Mm -hmm. So my first year was dedicated to protesting 209 and trying to be a first-year student.
1: Oh, that's impossible, (laughs) Araceli. First year of law school is so demanding. It was, and it was... um, I hated
0: it. I hated the first year of law school, and I just felt that... I felt like the second and third years expected the first years to be on the front lines, but then what? they had forgotten, well, with them, but they had forgotten what it was to be a first year. And I just didn't feel mm. as supported. And there was just a bunch of crap, yeah. rallies and protests and people talking smack, and then people having license to all of a sudden say you guys never belonged here type of mentality, and yeah. not just feeling it actually.
1: Well, people because saying you, it. You were, I mean, you were in the in the front lines, right, at a UC school. Yeah, and we were. I mean, I was at a private school where I don't think it was as impacted. Right. So interesting though that the second and the third years were like that because the second and third years at Loyola when I was there, all they cared about was like you first years better be studying and you better be passing your classes because it's really important that you get through that first year because, you know, you're Latinos, you're representing. We need you to get through that first year. There was an assumption that all of us were capable and we're going to be fine,
0: and they downplayed it. And they um, and again, I'm not blaming them. I just think it was the time. That it was yeah. It was highly politicized, and yeah. we were doing that. And
1: I was becoming a first year, and as you know, That was a shock for me. Yeah, because that first year, no joke, for anybody considering law school who hasn't heard about that first year of law school, it is extremely demanding.
0: Yeah, and I would carry around Black's Law Dictionary because it was all these words that I did. No, Black's Law Dictionary and then a regular dictionary because there was words in there that I
1: had never heard of. And it was... Yeah, and you're you're coming already from a very educated place, right? right? But no, it is a completely different language. It's a completely different way of thinking. You're, you know, you have no, I mean, if, unless you have no attorneys or ha- come from a family of attorneys, how how are you gonna know how demanding it is? I guess you can figure it out. But for me, yeah, it was a shock. It was like, holy crap. Yeah, and I, um, they were crying fast, so I ended up yeah, clinging
0: on to a, a Chicana from um, the Hollywood area who had gone to Yale undergrad. Oh, really? She went to Hamilton High School. And then another Chicana who grew up in Sunnyvale near San Jose who went to Berkeley undergrad as a transfer student. So she had mm. basically didn't do well in high school, went to community college, became, you know, started liking education through a Chicano professor there, Yeah, studied ethnic studies at Berkeley and then was there. So she was ultimately my roommate. But there was a small group of us yeah. that I felt supported by. Otherwise, it was... Uh, it was it was many times very lonely. And so through Latina Lawyers Bar Association where I met you and met a bunch of other Loyola people. Um I, I that Oh shit, sure. are you mad at me because I told you not to go no, to Loyola? No. no. and then I mean I it's 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 fine. My life would have been different.
1: I would have... I mean, yeah. Yeah, no, I I can't tell you. I, I mean, I can't say Betty I, Loyola when I was there, those that I just happened to be there at a moment when the Latinos were just we were strong, you know, and we 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 were it was just such a wonderful community. Even the people that we didn't like, we were still supportive of each other, you know, like, I'm not going to tell you there wasn't any drama mm-hmm. at all, you know, at, with among the Latinos in La Raza, but even still, we knew, like, even if there were conflicts with, within us, we knew that we had to stick together and, and support each other. And, you know, it was a good group.
0: I mean, then mm-hmm. were there were some people in the second and third year class that probably were a tighter group. And then the class that came right after us, it was dismal, the number mm-hmm. of Latinos, I think, seven
1: oh Jesus or wow. ten
0: seven, something like that and then there was like one African American yikes but then that led us to working on revamping kind of admissions and looking at different yeah. criteria and yeah. thinking outside the box which ended up bringing in people who probably weren't coming in before people from like um certain geographic areas people yeah. who had done military people who had done community college there was a Vietnamese woman who was a, had been a teen parent. Yeah. So then we started seeing that so I mean that that was refreshing and Berkeley today from what I read and know and talking to other people is more socially conscious than it was when I was there. Really? So even though we were politicizing, and we are doing the protests we didn't have a strong clinic program We now there is I think a social justice clinic. Yeah. We didn't have um a strong people of color presence among the professors, and administrators. I think we've had since then an yeah. African-American dean. We have had powerhouses come into the yeah. school that, that I didn't feel were there. It was very old school, traditional. I had professors who wrote all these case books. Yeah. And so, yes, they're known for that. And I'm not trying to down them, and it was a wonderful experience to have that. Yeah, of course. But I didn't, it, there was lack of, I considered lack of diversity and and
1: yeah which is not to say that Loyola was like high in numbers in Latinos but compared to other law schools at the time the the percentages were pretty high at Loyola and I think as far as I can remember still are they they still I think are one of the schools the law schools in the country that have the highest percentage of Latinos
0: and I think by the time like the second year and third year and I got more involved and I sought these opportunities I did international human rights clinics I Went to you know Maldives and yeah. Centro Legal de la Raza, and I, I put myself out there. Then it became more meaningful to me. Yeah,
1: yeah, no. I, and here, here at at Loyola, I mean, you know, it's L.A. First of all, it's Los Angeles, and we're like in Pico Loyola's in Pico Union, you know. So it's not. I mean, we would leave the campus and go to King Taco or like go get Tortas, you know. We yeah. were in in our com, in in a in a community that we were very familiar with, you right. know. Um, but Loyola also, even back in the 90s, you know, they had the public interest. Public interest was very important. They, I think, had a requirement that you had to do, like, some public interest work for everybody. It was great. I can't lie to you. And then we had offices back then. And so we had the RASA office, and then to our left was Balza, the Black Law Students Association, and to our right was APALSA, the Asian Pacific American Law Student Association, so, you know, we would all hang out there, and it was, yeah, it was great. And we did, I mean, we had that,
0: so it wasn't mm-hmm. like we didn't have it, and it was strong, and I think if somebody hears it and say, well, wait a minute, did we go to a different <laughs> experience? And I know that people have really tight connections, and I know that I could count on people if yeah. I needed to, and I have counted on them. It was, I just think that particular time period, what was going on with Proposition 209, yeah, and then yeah. people feeling like they had a license to say negative things about us, and the, they removed programs. So there was a program that they had for people of color to help them transition. Yeah, But they said, with SB1, no, we have to open it up to everybody. Yeah. So it was like it didn't... Um, so that was the difference between Occidental and... Berkeley.
1: Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong either. I mean, you know, it wasn't all wonderful and great at Loyola Mm -hmm. either. I mean, we were still a small percentage amongst Mm -hmm. the population and, and, you know, it still felt like um, a lot of the people there were from a different socioeconomic um, Mm -hmm. class than we were. Um, But we were able to form that little group that I think got us all through. Right. Know? That's yeah. how the, the way I felt for
0: Occidental. Yeah. 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 And I think, look, again, it was, I, I, you know, there was many times where I'm like, means to an end, means to an end. And, yeah. And, but I did have, I do have wonderful memories, and I did have a great time overall. Yeah. And for the most part, like, again, seeking out opportunities, I would go down to the they call it upper level, upper class, or I forgot what they called it, but like in the main part of Berkeley, there was like, I forgot what, there was a, a La Raza type of, organization somebody who had it for years yeah. I would go hang out with the un- the underclassmen is that what they call them? Yeah, <laughs> the undergrads. The undergrads, yeah. The undergrads, I would go there. Yeah. to feel some kind of connection. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah that's important, you know, when you're in a big university cuz big university yeah. and you are away from home. Yeah. Um so yeah, that I can see why that was really important. Yeah, yeah. And so then you graduate, what year did you graduate from? 99. 99. So you, man, you straight through, right?
0: No, I took a year off. Did you? Yeah.
1: In between Oxy and... I graduated
0: from Oxy in 95, and I went to Lost mm. May 95, and I went to law school in whatever, September 96 yeah. or August 96. Yeah. yeah.
1: And then you then you came out, took the bar, which yes. is an experience in and of itself, right. back when it was three days. That's yes. That's not three days anymore, right? It's not
0: three days, and it was three days, what, eight hours a day? Really oh, was okay. God, it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: Whatever, yeah. <laughs> um, you just all you had to do is just hope you got through it, you know? Yeah. Um, and then you pr- started practicing law. How long did you practice law before you opened your own office? Because you have your own office, About correct? five years. Five to six years. Yeah, five and a half years, maybe. Wow, that was pretty quick, Caraceli. Yeah. And did you know that you always wanted to open your own office? No, like I said, I had wanted to get into oh, yeah. educational
0: advocacy. I didn't know w- what type or how. And um, so with that first firm... They represented school districts, but they also did civil litigation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And when it closed down, and there was a bunch of layoffs, thankfully I, I got some contract work because we needed to finish up some some work, and so I had a good transition. Yeah. And at that time the market was good, and so I that exposed me to that experience of looking for a job exposed me to what was out there. Mm-hmm. So I applied to Malta if I did get a, a an offer, but they. It was really low paying. Yeah. Then there was um, National, what was it, uh, Neighborhood Legal Services. Yes. Out in Pacoima. Although, it actually paid more than Maldives, and they're unionized, so it w- there would be some increases, but it was too far for me. Yeah. Um, where else? City Attorney's Office I applied mm, to. For the LA? For yeah. Los Angeles? Yes. I had a headhunter. That, I just started the process. I didn't. I went to the first interview. By the time that they called me back, I already had a job. I went to attorney generals to start applying. I went, I had a headhunter because, uh, and I was, I applied for these top, like these like big civil litigation firms Mm -hmm. in downtown LA and Century Mm -hmm. City. I was everywhere. Yeah. I applied for like personal injury firms where this one man, it was by Dodger Stadium. It was a crazy dark office. (laughs) And I felt like I was like 20 feet (laughs) at least away from him. Like it was so far away. (laughs) And uh, he, well, actually more, like 40 feet away from him. And he sees my resume and he goes, what is a Berkeley lawyer doing in my office? <laughs> <laughs> and so I ultimately got a job at a Beverly Hills law firm, civil litigation mm-hmm. firm. All I knew is that I wanted litigation experience. I felt that that would open doors for me at that point. Now that I had kind of deviated from a certain track that yeah. I planned. Yeah. Uh, and I learned a whole lot. I was the only... There was a woman who was there who was part-time who left. And I was the only woman in the firm. I was only the person of color in terms of the attorneys. Yeah.
1: But and, I learned a lot. And were you doing just general lit- general litigation?
0: General civil litigation, which included... It was um, business litigation, real estate, um, employment. Yeah. Um, and it was... Main, yeah. That's yeah. what... That Those are the main areas.
1: And your take on litigation.
0: It's <laughs> <That's> a lot.
1: <laughs> it's a lot, but
0: it it w- I learned a lot. Yeah, we, we were a boutique law firm. we went up against big firms. Mm-hmm. So I had a lot of respect for the attorneys for whom I worked because they were intellectual. They were solution focused. So, for an example, in an employment case where we represented the employer, if it was a really bad case and we knew right off, like, they would settle. Like your would, employer
1: had, the employer
0: had screwed up. Yeah. So we would settle early. We yeah. would do workshops for them. We would yeah. do trainings for them. We would, that mm. kind of approach. Um, and the cases that were frivolous, we usually want on summer, summer judgment. judgment. Yeah. 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 And... Um, so I, I learned a lot. I was exposed to a lot. I did some extra toward the end there was they did they represented a lot of healthcare organizations so they did some med-mal defense. So mm-hmm. I was exposed to a lot having the deposition experience, having the court experience because even though I was an associate it was a small firm. Yeah. So Same. they depended on me hands-on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Did no, you not. try any cases? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I did. Yeah, I mean, that's that's litigation, right? I mean, it's and it's hard to get trial experience because most cases, most civil cases settle. Um, so you got all around experience, and that's where I learned family law. So there was one partner mm-hmm. who was,
0: he did civil litigation, but he also did estate planning and family law. Yeah. When he interviewed, he and another partner interviewed me, and he asked what area of law. Are you not interested in? It? And I said family law. I thought it was safe. Yeah. And he said, Why not? I said, Well, I just feel like it's too much drama, and I don't want to get involved in people's personal lives. And then he laughed because he said, Well, I do family law. So about maybe six months into me working there, he said, I know you say you don't want to do family law, but here is a file. Mm. And I said, I don't know anything about this. And he said, uh, He said it's okay because you're going to learn. Right. And we're not going to build the client for your
1: learning. Oh, so that's wow. what I'm
0: talking They had integrity. Yeah.
1: That's what I, I liked about them. Well, that's refreshing in the legal field, right. you know, because there's just like a lot of attorneys, especially doing defense work, that are not, right. that don't have integrity, right? Yeah. That even on cases where they know their clients maybe made a mistake, they're going to just keep working on the cases because they want to bill their clients. Exactly. As opposed to settling and, and getting out early. And it could
0: be too that they have, I mean, their clients were, like I said, a lot of them were healthcare corporations. Mm-hmm. They weren't humongous ones. Yeah. So, you know, so, yeah. so it mattered, right? right? Billing mattered. Yeah. Um, and so the family law, their cases there is like, that's where I, that first case I remember. I mean, the, where did they live? Was that a Bel Air case? I, I don't know. I think, yes, I think they lived in Bel Air. They belonged to a country club, that couple. There was, um, a personal property appraiser. So they had to appraise their artwork mm. and Yadro and stuff that I had never heard of. The, <laughs> yadro, those, uh, like that? the porcelain type. Oh, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, like figurines oh. and stuff. And then the tas and things that I had never heard of. And all of a sudden I went, I would go to, uh, uh, there was a staff member there who came for money. Yeah, But she like had, St- you know, walked away from it. Yeah, and so I would go to her and ask her what
1: these things were. <laughs> you didn't have um, yadros in, in East Delhi. I guess I could
0: type it in, <laughs> Google it. Maybe I didn't. We didn't Google I mean, as much. I don't think we googled that much back we then. We didn't Google it, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but I learned a whole lot, and so now it's funny because when people fight, that I don't. I have different types of clients and different types of money or whatever, different levels, but. I really don't see that. And when people start fighting about things, I'm like, do you want to get a personal property appraiser? Because they do exist. But I don't think that it's worth it because it, what it is is a, a yard sale value.
1: Oh, Jesus. <laughs> God.
0: Can you imagine? So I asked them, think about everything in your house. Put it out in your yard. What would you get for it? And well, some people have no concept. a real reality check. I know. It is because I'll tell them. I'm like, oh, mine's not worth that much. <laughs> It really
1: is. <laughs> and 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 so that's how you started doing family law. Yes. And do you now you do family law and do you like family law? I do law? like it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So what I I started doing family law there and it was I would say it's like one it was probably one to three percent of what I did at that Uh huh. And then now it's opposite. Yeah. I do one to three percent is civil litigation and then, and then
1: the rest is family law. Right. And when did you open your own office? Two
0: thousand six, January two
1: thousand six. Oh wow. So you've been at it for a while now. Right. So you open you opened your office a little earlier than I had than I did. I started on my own with Monica, yes Gisard in two thousand eight. Yeah. I think. Yes, and then she left and two thousand eleven is when I, I, you know it was the offices of, of Sandra Simunoz. Yeah. Yeah, can you? How is that for you, Araceli, to have your own office? I love it. Yeah, and I think it's
0: very liberating. It's still hard work. Um, I, I can't. I've always. Worked. I've had a strong work ethic. I tell people I've started working since I was thirteen. I was a tutor at Griffith. I tutored other kids. I would get there early in the morning uh, to tutor, you? and I was on the LAUSD <laughs> payroll <laughs> for three dollars and change an hour. Um, I worked at the Montebello Town Center in did high you? school. I worked at the Citadel. Okay, where did you work at the Montebello? Town <laughs> at, at, <Center>. Red Eye. <laughs> at Red At Red Eye. Eye. It was a little shop for like these, like kind of cheapy clothes. Oh really? Like,
1: oh, me- oh, I probably didn't neons. go there because I, you know, I, I went to Lee Bryant. <laughs>
0: it was so that it was on the upper level <laughs> and uh, and then at the Citadel I worked at the Corning Revere store
1: oh really? you yeah you did oh that's awesome did you get discounts I did mm. and then at the
0: summer in the summer I always worked your summer youth employment
1: I worked at Sizzler <laughs> did you yeah did you? at Monterey Park no they didn't even, they gave you like discounts but it's not like they gave you free food or anything Is Jeez. it at Montebello on Beverly no that's the old one this was this one was on Garfield. And uh, Val- Garfield and Garvey. Oh, I didn't know that one. You, I'm sure you did. I
0: never went to Sizzler growing up. What? And Never. Never. And so I remember there was a kid in my class, I don't know if it was middle school or high school, and he talked about his family going to Sizzler, and I thought he was rich.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I went to, my family went to Sizzler for my graduation from Garfield High School. I mean, it was, you know, it was fancy. <laughs> I, I will tell you right now from the bottom of my heart, I love Sizzler. I saw your post about the banana pudding. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I like to say that I go to, Sizz, I go to Sizzler for the Malibu chicken and I stay for the banana pudding. <laughs> I love Sizzler. When it closed down during the pandemic, I was heartbroken. But it's back, so go Sizzler. I am not anti Sizzler. I've had. <laughs> do you it go f- now?
0: I have not been. I've been a few times <laughs> in my life. I call myself an East LA snob <laughs> because if I could find a place with. Uh, you know where I went yesterday? To, and uh, see if I pronounce it correctly in French, République. Oh, you don't don't know what i That's, that's
1: that. how you pronounce it. How do you pronounce <laughs> it? I think it's like. like f- I don't know. Republique. But think it's Republicans. Republique, yeah, I think it's Thank French.
0: You, see? <laughs> Republique. I took two years of French and I messed it up. I just want to say Republic. Yeah, I think
1: I mean yeah, that's good enough for me. Yeah. So I went Republique. there after I went there after court yesterday. That's fancy, isn't it? <laughs> it's
0: not that fancy, but I just want to Where is take, it? It's on La Brea
1: on your six. Oh, that's like on the west side. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't go over there too much. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so usually if I finish court early, I may go into Pasadena. I may go a little Largemont Village, You know like where
1: that. I went today? I went to the Nepal-Tibet house in Pasadena. Oh, was it good? It was delicious. The one on Fair Oaks? Is it Fair Oaks, It's though? on Holly. Oh. I, went, I met with my former boss there today. That's nice. And it's mostly, it's very similar to Indian food. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's delicious. I love Indian food, I love so. Indian food, too. I do, too. Yeah, chana masala. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> you sound like Forrest Gump. <laughs> chana masala, garbanzo beans. I know I love Indian yeah, food. Yeah, I do, too. You know? And I'm not, you know, and the, with the naan. Oh, yes.
0: And no, uh, it's delicious.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, okay, so... <laughs> Food. How what did we get tacos? to Sizzler? I do we want to get say, to the tacos. Okay, all right. <laughs> <But laughs> so, how did we get to Sizzler? How well, we had worked. worked. I worked at Sizzler. Yes, I did work at Sizzler because my my brother was a manager at Sizzler, but he was out in the valley. But he got me the job <laughs> at Monterey Park because of connections. <laughs> <laughs> so I no. I We're talking about. So you always work. Yeah, working yeah. hard, which you have to do as a solo practitioner. I mean, you have paid, your clients pay you, right? Yes. I, I mean, they pay you. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, but my clients don't pay me because right. I take cases on a contingency basis. Right. And so I'm only paid if I'm able to recover something for my clients, right? If I'm not able to recover anything, then I lose my time and any out of pocket costs that I've put into the case. Right. So that is very, very, very hard. Yeah. I'm sure they know it is. <laughs> they call it feast or famine, and sometimes it's very well, it goes well, and everything's good, and money's coming in, and sometimes it's not. So right. it's very hard. So right. you have to work hard and you have to keep pushing your cases. Right. Yeah. But you have a little, but either way, whether you're getting paid hourly or you're getting or, or a, a, retainer, you know, a retainer or a flat fee, or you're taking cases on a contingency basis, when you're on your own, you have to work really hard. Right. Yeah. Or you're probably not going to make money. That's correct. <laughs> and you have
0: to develop, right, a reputation. And yes, you do. And so it it um it's rewarding. You asked me if I like to work on my own, yeah. and I, I did, and I, I do want to say that I had considered work going on my own for a while. I was scared. Yeah. Right. Because mm-hmm. it's going to be you have the the um the paycheck, the benefits, yeah. the security um not worrying about the administration of a business yep. or billing or anything like that. I mean in terms of billing the clients.
1: Right. Yes, you have yeah, you're not the decision maker, you're right. not it's not all on you. It's you know, you have all of this like yeah, you have a, a support like support or your part of a team as opposed to being the only member on the team, you know? Right. But I did have, so I had already considered it. I had
0: talked to people who were solo, among them Mario Vega I had talked to, who I went to Occidental with. I had talked to Luz Herrera. Yes. And so Luz Herrera, who is now a dean at Texas A&M Law School, she had contacted me in the summer of 2005. And asked, she knew that I wanted to start my firm. She said, you've been talking about it. She had an opportunity to teach at Harvard, which is her alma mater, mm-hmm. Harvard Law School, in 2006 for a fellowship. And so she asked me if I was interested. in t- She wanted someone to take over the office. And at that point, she was incompetent. so
1: she had her own office.
0: She had her own office. She and I are contemporaries. We mm-hmm. both graduated from law school in 1999. Mm-hmm. I had met her through my law school roommate. They had worked together in San Francisco. Yeah she um had worked at Heller Erman it's now defunct but is Heller Erman
1: defunct yes yet? wow yeah. okay. and so
0: it was in San Francisco and Heller Erman's was a was big was firm was a big firm big was, firm down you know big corporate firm yeah and then she moved to LA and was working there and she was dissatisfied and said why did I bec- I didn't become a lawyer to be working in this type of environment and so after a maba trip to Cuba
1: Oh, I so went on that
0: trip. Must have been, what, 2002, oh, I don't, I don't 2003, early 2000s. So she met um, Salvador Alva, an oh, attorney yes. in Huntington Park. Yep. And they became friends, and she started working for him, or volu- whether volunteer or paid, I don't know what she was doing, but in Huntington Park. And a letter came through from John Ortega, now deceased, an attorney who had been in Compton for decades. And he, he would say, I may have not been a good, the best attorney, but I was here. Yeah. Because it was highly underserved area.
1: Yeah, Compton.
0: Compton. Yeah. As well as other neighboring cities such right. as Linwood, Southgate, yeah. Maywood. So a lot of these Southeast communities, if they have anybody, they have paralegals or no, I can't
1: say that I know anybody who works out there. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So from there Las loose yeah. started community lawyers because she wanted mm-hmm. her vision was to get lawyers back to the community. Yeah. And not only to be there, but to offer, you know, not to price people out. Right. Right. And so when I, when that was her motto, and so she was a solo practitioner while starting her baby. Yeah. Of community lawyers. And oh,
1: I thought, I thought you no, meant literally she had no, a baby. No, 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 no. Her Yes, <laughs> <baby organization>.
0: <laughs> which was community lawyers. Yeah. And, uh, so... I was there for about a year and a half at her office um. and I suddenly, so I had the opportunity, you know, I walk into an office with everything that I need.
1: Yeah. Oh, like and, yeah. you mean practically speaking like desks and
0: desk. And uh, I just, I think I need to get my own computer.
1: Yeah. Maybe a fax machine back then. Yeah. <laughs> she had a copier
0: and then she had a, <sighs> so yeah, I mean, me phone lines yeah. and it
1: was an office that was known. And that's a huge advantage. And, and, yeah I mean good for her and good for you that you guys were there were able to do that for each other and her biggest thing was that I don't
0: want this community to go without a Spanish speaking attorney and she also knew that she was doing family law she was doing real estate she was doing some general civil that I knew
1: and that first office was in Compton Compton. it was John Ortega's office it was John Ortega's
0: office she was leasing from him so she didn't really take over he had closed shop so she started new there
1: how long did you stay in Compton
0: and about a year and a half and then you went where Paramount which is a neighboring Yikes, city
1: yeah also yeah. I mean yeah. I remember you, when your office was in Paramount it was like Paramount how, what, you know yes and then you went from Paramount to Norwalk Norwalk, and that's and, where you are now mm-hmm, I've been there yeah. since 2015 and I had
0: another opportunity so the opportunity from John Ortega who I knew yeah. as well I mean the fact that Luce and I had an office that people knew about right yeah vamos al abogado si si like everybody just knew it yeah and there was nobody else. Yeah. <laughs> I mean so there I was so be- you're
1: gonna get people coming. Well, to you. Right, right. Yeah.
0: And and I had the most
1: interesting cases.
0: Did you? Yeah. And it was just it was it was fascinating. Like the things that I started getting exposed to and I was getting exposed to family law in a different way. Mm. Um not So not
1: not so much Beverly
0: Hills. <laughs> well, f- well and not even that, just some and but then there's been some complex legal issues that have come mm. out of those cases. Yeah. And so family law, you have to know Quite a bit. So people just think, oh, it's, you know, some people don't even, yeah, of course, it's custody and visitation, which is big, and there's support. But then you have issues of like the the interplay between separate property and community property and then business interest. And so you have to know a lot and you have to have a team because I refer people all the time to tax attorneys. Right. Right. You know, sometimes there's immigration issues. Right. There's criminal law issues. Sometimes there's, you know, business issues. A business, if you have a corporation, the business, well, they're going to be joined into the case. Right. Right and they have to have their own attorney. So it's it's more involved and a lot of people don't realize that the all the rules of civil procedure, code of civil procedure mm-hmm. apply. apply. Mm-hmm. Evidence code, everything yeah. applies. Yeah.
1: No, I, I mean it's certainly it, it certainly is Yeah, it's it, I mean if you don't do it you're not going to know, right? You think oh, divorce, you know, like right. that's what I think when I think family law. Yeah, and you think oh, it's
0: easy and it just split oh, it up. I don't and, think
1: it's easy. <laughs> no. Because I, I, I did, when I started my own office, I did one divorce case, mm-hmm. and I, it wasn't for me. M- maybe it was that case, you know, but I, I, they were fighting over things that I was just like, I can't I can't deal with this, you know. Right. Because I had come already from employment cases, that's what I knew, so even learning something new was really hard for me. Yeah, yeah. it is, and, you, and yeah. one
0: thing is important to try to stay, to stay in your lane, because if you can't, yes. if you don't, yes. and I've done other cases, as you know, but then... I feel great just saying, you know what? No, I'm going to refer you to this person. There is enough business to go around, and I just feel better knowing that putting it in the hands of someone.
1: In the right hands. No, I agree, because I have seen cases. I mean, I I am exclusively now employment. That is all I do. I have taken, I, I have in my career done some police abuse and maybe prisoner right cases, but that was a long time ago. I exclusively do employment law, and sometimes clients come to me after having talked to another attorney about their situation at work. And the attorney has no idea what to do or has just given bad advice. And I never understand that about attorneys who who give advice when they don't even know the area of the law. It's just right. like, don't do that. Like, just right. send people to, or call, if you don't want to send the case out because you want to keep it, but call an attorney who does know. Right. You know, just attorneys telling people to go on a leave or, you know, just... Bad recommendations yeah yeah I'm a, I'm a stay in your lane kind of person too, mm-hmm. and I am more than happy to tell people i don't know you know right,
0: and that's the best thing to say is you even within family law, yeah, and people tell me, I say, you know what i don't know, and I have to look it up,
1: yeah, no, I know, or when people call me and are like uh, you know I am. I, how many breaks I'm in I always have to look that mm-hmm. stuff How many breaks or am I entitled to a lunch period After 10 hours or 12 hours I'm like oh uh, I have to look it up Because right. even though I might have some idea It's just you know I have no problem telling people I don't know
0: Yeah and the laws ever changing And then I know in employment law they have different um, For different um, types of fields right Yeah like they, oh they? yeah yeah they're yeah. called
1: wage orders exactly. like, the There's wage, wage orders. orders for yeah. every different like occupation mm-hmm. Yeah yeah no, it's complicated. The, and, and I sometimes people get frustrated, you know, because you don't know the answer right off the top of your head. And I'm like, I'm sorry, but, you know, I have to look stuff up. I, you know, I, yeah. can't, I can't know it all.
0: Yeah. One thing that I tell people when they call and they want to pose a question or scenario to me. And I said, well, and then they're talking to referring to documents, whether it's deed, whether it's a contract. Mm-hmm. So, well, I need to see it? I go just like a doctor needs to examine the body. A mechanic needs to examine the uh, car. Yeah, I need to look. My job is looking at paper. yeah and 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 figuring it out right. right. Yeah,
1: because you generally not an easy answer to anything. no, you know, and it's never it's rarely also black or white, you know, like, Sometimes people call me and say, well, I I need this accommodation because I have this injury or this work restriction. Is my employer supposed to give it to me? You know, and I'm like, well, it depends, you know, on what the accommodation is, who the employer is. What are you asking for? You know, what's your job? Like, what do you I mean, it's not it's not yes or no, usually. And right. Yeah. And it's. um
0: I tell people, I get the question of, can somebody do something? Yeah. Can, like in a divorce context, can (laughs) he take me off the health insurance? Yeah. Can she change the locks? And I said, well, can they physically? Yes, they can. Yeah. Should they legally, ethically, morally? No. Right. And I said, anybody can do it. And that's where... You assert your, you know, your rights, and you have recourse, and you have remedies, and some things you don't have remedies for, yeah. And that's the hardest thing. Yeah. Oh, it's so
1: hard, right? right? The thing I often tell people who call me when, like, let's say they've been fired. You know, like, you know, they have, you know, they have the right to fire you. I'm not telling you it's. It's right, or it's fair, or it's just. I'm just telling you, like legally, there's nothing you can do about this because you don't have a case. It's so hard. People
0: sometimes get really upset about that, you know. Right, and the ones when I get because I've gotten those calls and I've dealt those cases, and it's like, but I've worked with them for thirty yeah, I years, know, I know. and I sacrificed so much, I know. and it's it's heartbreaking.
1: It is. It's super heartbreaking. Mm. And you know, sometimes people call you and they're like, you know, basically my supervisor's an asshole, you know, and I'm like, well. He's an asshole to everyone. It's not against the law, yeah. you know. It's you know, unless he's an asshole to you because of your race or your gender, your nationality, any of these protected mm-hmm. categories. It's you know, it's I, there's not a whole lot I can do for you, right? Because as I often tell people, it is not unlawful to be an asshole in the yeah. workplace. And I think
0: giving people. I mean, people, people do thank me all the time when I give them the rea- reality check. And then I just spoke to a woman on a real estate issue recently, and she said one attorney told me, well, we could try, and we could file, and we could try to make this claim. Well, I'm like, it's not a viable claim that yeah. you're making, ma'am. Yeah. And so she appreciated the fact that I said that. And then another attorney said, well, I'm going to charge you, I think it's going to be a $30,000 case, but then I can't guarantee that you're going to get what you want. And I said, and she's like, and I said, no, like, well, it it's actually wasn't a difficult case. Yeah. Just that she wanted to have a greater financial advantage than her the person that she bought the property from and i said i don't there's no yeah (laughs) and but she appreciated it because i'm like why are you going to spend money on an attorney or spend time on
1: a lawsuit that's frivolous absolutely makes no sense yeah i I, yeah when i take the time there are definitely people who call and they're appreciative of the time that you've taken to explain to them why they may not have gays but you know then then it's just sometimes people call and they're just ungrateful (laughs) They're oh, yeah. ungrateful.
0: <laughs> well, no, there's some people who just want it. And I, I'll tell you, people, I'm not a yes person. I'm just going to tell you yes just to appease you or to satisfy you and make you feel better. Because ultimately, it's a time investment. It's a money investment when yeah. you get into a case. And I had an employment case where I prevailed in a jury trial. And that's a time when they didn't have the limitations on depositions in terms of like the seven hours or whatever it is now that they have. What's oh, a cap.
1: There's oh, they don't apply in employment cases They don't? No Yeah, There is no cap There isn't? I didn't realize that Yeah, the, the the rule on the number of hours per deposition doesn't apply to employment cases I did not know that Yeah, I know Yeah So It's torturous sometimes for my clients It can
0: be So this case, because I haven't done any since the, the mm-hmm. rule changed Yeah But I know it changed for other civil, for civil cases. Yeah. Yeah. For all civil cases. And family law too. Yeah.
1: For all of them except for employment cases.
0: Wow. Yeah. And so he had gone to three days of depot. Yeah. And then whatever, the three days of trial. Yeah. And then even though we won, he said, I wouldn't wish this experience on my worst enemy.
1: Yeah. It's hard. I mean, and I tell people who come and they're like, they want to sue. I'm like, listen, filing a lawsuit should be your absolute last resort. Like when nothing else has worked. It's not fun, it's not easy. it takes a lot of time. it takes a lot of energy and emotion money it is should absolutely be the last resort when nothing else has worked, right, yeah, yeah, but you know, yeah no I, the I also try to avoid taking frivolous cases because first of all, I don't get paid if right. I'm not able to recover any money from my clients right. so taking a frivolous, and so people have asked me like, well, why don't you just take them for nuisance value, you know, just get paid, and I'm just I don't see the point of that and I, I think it devalues the legitimate cases that people have, you know, and so I, yeah I, I agree, yeah I absolutely agree, and I don't want to spend my time on cases that I don't believe in, I just yeah, you know, no and that's where integrity comes in I, yeah, I like to think I have some integrity yeah, yeah no, I mean it
0: it matters, yeah. and it does, um, you know, people will remember. And then, because that person that wasn't accepting of your assessment will go to the next person, yeah. and then they'll get nothing, or they'll yeah. get abandoned, or yeah. they'll feel, And um, it, it just doesn't feel good. One of the hardest things that I had when working at a civil, the civil litigation firm, and they was I was on the defense side, mm-hmm. and seeing people of color being represented by... Plaintiffs, attorneys who didn't know their case Who didn't speak their language who, who who Put them in really situations where you knew It was heart-wrenching for me to take Depositions of plaintiffs And who were not prepared That's, But then I had to
1: do my job But yeah, no, of course yeah. Of course, You yeah, I don't You know, a lot, I mean, a lot of people take A lot of plaintiffs, attorneys in the Employment um, area Which is the area I know, I'm, this probably Happens in other areas take cases of clients whose language they don't speak, right? right? Because this is California and a lot of the workers in California are Spanish speaking mm-hmm. or they speak other languages and so yeah, a lot of people take represent people whose language they don't speak and probably would get in trouble for saying this with other plaintiff's attorneys, but I just don't see how you can do that. Yeah. I just don't see how you can represent somebody without speaking their language. Yeah, I, I, I have in the past gotten calls from people who don't speak English or Spanish, and I just I can't do it. I'm gonna send them to, to people who do speak their language because there has to be a connection with your client. There has to be some understanding. Yeah, yeah. But you know, a lot of people do it. Yeah, and I think that in addition to the language is the
0: understanding yeah. of circumstances. And that's I, hard too. You and know? that's hard too. And that's not everyone's gonna have that. I get it. And I don't. I mean, we can relate to every single situation, but coming from a situation, I think backgrounds like we are, we bring something else where we have that understanding and we could relate to people in a certain way.
1: There's just no, I mean, if I look at my clientele and who I've represented over the course of like my 20 plus years of experience, I mean, I haven't done the, the actual count, but I'm the majority of them have been Latinos, you Mm -hmm. know, and and a lot of them have been Latina women. And a lot of them have come from immigrant backgrounds or just people that I can somehow relate to or that are like my family or that, you know. And I just think that is, puts me at an advantage that other attorneys who don't have that experience or that background have, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But often, Clients, when they're looking for an attorney, they don't, they're not shopping around because it's hard to find a good attorney. You know, it's hard to find an attorney. You just kind of like, oh, this attorney will take my case. Let's do it, you know, right without really considering. But that's why this podcast is going to be really helpful, because I'm going to bring clients on to talk about their experiences filing a lawsuit so that other people maybe don't go into it so blind, you know, because yeah. that's what clients are doing.
0: Yeah. They know. don't know, you know? Yeah, and I tell, like, when I've had the empl- employment cases and I've told them, I said, look, it's rare that it happens, but if you do lose, the employer may file a motion for fees claiming that it was frivolous. And um, and I started putting that on my retainers. Did you? Because it happened once to me. And thankfully, he didn't have to pay because we appealed the decision. Yeah. And it was a case that was removed to federal court because it was a uh, diversity jurisdiction mm. and um, you know we dropped the appeal he didn't have to pay anything and that wasn't even an issue another one another one they tried to do it but I opposed it unsuccessful success I opposed it successful
1: yeah no for sure and that's the other thing about it too like I I'm straight up with my clients like I'm gonna tell you the good the bad and the ugly right right from the get-go and yeah you you have to be open to that and if I you know I'm sure that I have lost clients who have decided to go with somebody else because they don't want to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, right. they just want to hear the good. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, um, I, yeah, I think it's a disservice not to tell them about the The rough the, parts. The yeah. rough
1: parts. The ugly parts. Because yeah. if I don't do it, opposing counsel's going to do it, you know, or somebody's going to do it. So, yeah. yeah. Just, just this morning I had a, a case. It would have gone
0: to trial, but it got pushed back because the judge wasn't available. But I talked to my client a little bit more about what because we we're trying to settle on a real mm. estate issue in a divorce case and it was an interpretation of a date and she was resting on something where she thought that he had waived his rights and I and, and I'd done it before, but now she had her family with her mm. and they wanted to hear it yeah and so I, I started I basically like I started asking questions as if we were in trial. Mm. And I go. This is. These are the questions that are going to be asked. These are the answers that are going to be given. And none of this helps you. Yeah. And yeah. so that's where you have to realize it. But these are conversations I've been having throughout. But she made the assumption that. Yeah. That it would go a certain way.
1: Well, <laughs> sometimes you talk to your clients and you tell them the truth and the truth, but they're not listening. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, listen to me. Right. 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 <laughs> but yeah. No. Yeah. I'm a straight kind of straightforward straightforward kind of person i often say i'm burdened with punctuality and honesty (laughs) and i don't know if those two qualities are very good for the legal profession
0: no i think they are i think that you can you develop that that um reputation yeah and people i feel that the clients and outcomes like whether it's the law of attraction what have you Usually, it's going to be word of mouth, yeah, so they already say, don't worry about Sally, they know they they already told me how you are, yeah, 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 and so for example, that I prefer that they email me, that they prefer <laughs> that we set up phone conferences that right. I prefer whatever it is, yeah, how could we best work together because I always tell them it's a
1: collaboration absolutely, right and some and some sometimes your you and your client are not a good mix, and it's it's just better to let it go and that right, yeah. Because we, yeah, personalities. Yeah, yeah, because it's, you know, you're going to work together a long, uh, usually a while, you know, and if you don't, you hate your client, that's no good.
0: Right. Yeah. And I said you're going to spend, and for me, I'm when we're in family law, sometimes you can be in court for hours, and you carry uh, over God. to lunch, and you're going to have lunch. You want to be able to, like, eat lunch with your client and yeah. talk about something outside of the case yeah. and have some kind of commonality and respect for each other.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. All right, so you have been on your own. You're going to stay on your own? I think so.
0: Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've been wanting to do and I have training for and I've done it in, in, in large respect is mediation.
1: Oh, really? Right. You want to become a mediator yeah. in the family law area? I could do family law. I could yeah. do civil. Oh, just let, so Sorry. just just generally, let mediators are people who try to p- bring two parties together, usually in separate rooms, and try to negotiate a settlement. Yes, um, between the two parties, and well, at least in the employment arena, they're very expensive. I mean, there are some mediators who charge literally twenty thousand dollars for one <laughs> day's of work, one day of work. And most, you know, still are charging from, like, ten to $15,000 a day. Right. And it's crazy. I'm just like, that is nuts. It is crazy. It is crazy. But And and the other thing about it is, is there's not a lot of people who speak Spanish who do mediations, you know? Right. And when you have a Spanish-speaking client and you take them to a mediation, they don't understand anything the mediators say. And I think it's a disadvantage.
0: Right. Yeah. And so I was, I was, I'm, and I'm aware of those services and I've used those services. And for me, I get great satisfaction when my case is settled yeah and so helping people so when I do it now a lot of times people come to me to do an uncontested divorce for example Mm. or um, Mm. that's usually the scenario that I'm doing but because I have civil litigation experience um, I think that I could help but I would you know Particularly, and I am thinking about the Spanish-speaking communities.
1: It's rough out there. Right, there's, right. There's, there. I could probably count on one hand the number of mediators in the employment arena. I know you're, you're broader yeah. than that, who speak Spanish. It's right. very, very limited. Right. Very limited. And the other thing about it, too, is that, and I think this is generally true for, for attorneys, but does this also just come from a different background? Like, you know, there's not a lot of, like, there's not a lot of poor. Attur- I mean, there are a lot of poor attorneys, but I just have a str. I just, just usually struggle with mediators because I have to convince them that my client who makes minimum wage, for example, that his emotional distress is just as valuable, if not more, than somebody who makes, you know, two hundred grand a year. Right. And that kind of convincing of a mediator just takes. You know, I I don't understand why I have to even. Convince the mediator of that. No, and I felt that. And yeah. I
0: felt. And I, that one case that I said that we ended up winning the, the jury trial, and my client said he wouldn't wish it on his on his uh, worst enemy. When we went to mediation, the mediator thought that it had no value. Yeah, the century yeah. said he mediator, and he said he didn't think we would get anything, and to settle for nuisance value. Yeah, and he was ultimately wrong. And I've and I've had those experiences, and you feel really. That's where you feel. You know, your clients feel disempowered. Yep. And then again, having been on the defense side and then going through it and seeing the plaintiffs and the plaintiffs being clueless yeah. inside a Century City office of what's going on. Yeah. And it's just, it's, the system could really screw with people.
1: Yeah, no, the system yeah. and... You know the people who make up the system oh, right you know right. <laughs> it's made up of people no i know it's not the system is not geared or or made up for you know people who don't speak the language or who aren't familiar with the legal system or yeah you know it's it's it, yeah so to be able to get an attorney that can represent you and understands where you come from big advantage but to be able also to work with the mediator who understands that i mean that's that's really really hard yeah Yeah. So yes, become a mediator. Yeah, I know. I've been wanting to, and just I think one
0: of the challenges is, you have a certain income flow, and there's a certain expectation to for the office and for your household, and then all of a sudden to just cut that off and venture into something new. But that's what, you know, I do have goals. Yeah. And I've I've also (laughs) been wanting to write, and I think this is the the advantage that we have with our degree, Mm -hmm. that it could take us to different places and. I wanted to be a journalist, that's what I asked you about, yeah. what you wanted to do. Yeah. And I wrote on the school paper and Did I was you? a managing editor at, at, Occidental. at Occidental. So that was my passion. I actually wanted to do broadcast
1: mm-hmm. journalism. Yeah,
0: But um, disseminating information, empowering people, that was always something that I was interested in.
1: Yeah,
0: And so that's one of the things that's funny, I tell people, prospective clients or even clients, I get frustrated sometimes at how many myths are out there, right? misconceptions about the law or rights. And then I try to like appeal to their common sense and talk about stuff. And I said, I wish I would just broadcast it so that people could know. <laughs> Something like this, yes. Oh, yeah. So I'd
1: order me some tacos.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um, it, it um, and I can. I know with social media, it's very empowering. But then I've hesitated to launch myself that because I'm just one person. So I have, as it is, I have a lot of business. Yeah. I do turn away business. Yeah. And I don't, you know, in order to get to that next level, I have to be prepared. Let me
1: get back, though,
0: to the writing, because you want to write. What do you want to write? I want to write, and this is very kind of outside of what I ever did, because I was more of the literary creative person. Is self help a self help book really? for divorce?
1: Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Araceli. And so I've I've had friends um, who are like life coaches and stuff like that, and and did again got introduced to a lot of self help books. Mm-hmm. It's a huge industry.
1: Yeah, right. It and is. I
0: and I I've come to appreciate a lot of writers in that area. Mm-hmm. And so there is a certain formula <laughs> that they follow. Yeah. yeah. I mean if you know about it. It's well, always a certain the,
1: formula for a lot of things. Yeah, but yeah. Right. Like, right. Yeah.
0: So it's gonna be very much like tip based And I did start start it. I just haven't finished it. And I even have I think something that would be really, really catchy that could lead into other books. I just again it's
1: making that time. Which is difficult because you're a business owner and right. an attorney and yeah. that and also a wife and a mother. Yes. And so yeah, of course. I, as you know, also have always had writing aspirations, um, but it's, re- it's, first of all, the time issue is, the time is an issue, and, you know, I don't have the kind of discipline where, you know, get up at four and write for two hours, I just, you know, I can't do it, um, but also writing is hard, you know, right. it's just really hard to write, um, but yeah, I, you know, I have those aspirations as well.
0: Right, and I think it's starting small would be good. I mean, there's...
1: Yeah, I like the uh, self-help idea.
0: Right. I mean, there's, like, for example, I'm a member of the Paramount Chamber of Commerce still, mm-hmm. and I it's a strong Chamber of Commerce. They have a publication. They have a kind of like an expert corner. Oh, do they? Where you can write an article and, yeah. you know, just get published to yeah. write something. And, again, I put it on the back burner. But if I start small, yeah, then that could create something else. But I think that that's something... I, I'm glad that I'm verbalizing it because now that I say it,
1: yeah, it, I can make it happen. Well, yeah, that's yeah. that's right, right? Like, I mean, ultimately, it's about making it happen and right. doing it and doing the work. Um, yeah, but it's hard, you know, yeah. when you have a, an office to run and a family and yeah. You also want to rest, right? <laughs> well, and watch Law and Order. Watch Law and Order. Oh, that's the other thing we have in common. You love Law. I love Law and Order. i I do too. I'm obsessed. Obsessed. It's SVU. Yes. Yeah. No, I know. Me too. I mean, I love them all. Yes. Um, but SVU is my is my. That's my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> it's my. <laughs> my crutch, my comfort blanket. I love and yes, know, new season this year. Yes, the crossover. Yes. No, I, I you don't like the new one, right? Yeah. Criminal Intent. Yes, that's what it's called. Do no, you, it's it's back to the original one. Yeah, but do you like the the new one with Elliot Stabler? No,
0: <laughs> organized crime. Yeah, organized crime. I told you, it's too much male energy for me. It's I, too much but it's male. Elliot Bravado. Stabler.
1: <laughs> God, you know, I I have watched every episode of Law & Order SVU many, many yes. times. And God, Elliot Stabler was such an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. He was terrible sometimes. Yes, he was. You know, it so was. terrible. Yeah. Uh. Ugh. <laughs> But I love. I was, I, I was excited that he was coming back. I gave it a chance. It was just too much. I can't it, tell you. I love. I love organized crime, and I I love Elliot Stabler. Yeah. <laughs> and let me ask you this, because I I often like there's this whole thing about Elliot Stabler and Olivia being in love. Olivia's in love with Elliot. Do you feel that way? Yes. No, of course they are leading not, up to that. I don't want them to get together. That's going to
0: happen. You know that. I don't
1: want it's, it. To, I don't think she's in love with him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so the, the. I think she's in love with Barbara. <laughs>
0: No, I want she's... her to
1: get together with Barbara. What was that guy's
0: name? She was what was the one she was dating? The uh internal first? Tucker. Tucker. I love Tucker. <laughs> I was gonna call him
1: Tanner, Tucker, yes. <laughs> guy, I remember when ice tea was like, Have you told Elliot about Tucker?
0: <laughs> I was like <laughs> <laughs> what about him? The other one, um, oh my god, the guy that comes in the Austin commercial.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Um oh my god, he was such a mess. What was his name? <laughs> I forgot his I name. I forgot his name, but he was a Not She's gone now. Car- no, she's not left yet. <laughs> she's Hi- gonna leave. I know, I'm so sad about Kelly Amanda. Giddish. Yeah. Amanda. Amanda leaving. I liked Amanda and Carisi. <laughs> so we're gonna wrap up now, Araceli. But before you go, I wanted to ask you um. Give me your three favorite tacos. Okay, the tacos that we had to get today. King taco. King taco, which ones? Carnasada. You're like, I see I'm al pastor, but okay. I, 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 love, like, I like al pastor. I love king taco. A lot of people talk shit about king taco, but I love king taco, and I always will.
0: There is a taco place on Atlantic and Verona near the post office across from the winter winter schnitzel called Tacos al Cabron. Handmade tortillas... Carne is amazing. They also have like a costilla. And they also, they have everything. Chorizo. It's a truck or is it's
1: it? It's a... Yeah, it's a puesto. It's a puesto. It's a big <laughs> ass it's puesto. Like the whole block. <laughs> the whole block.
0: <laughs> it's delicious. Okay. And now there's another one. Props to my husband's cousin. Taco Sebrián, A taco truck. White Memorial. ER. Pennsylvania in Boyle Heights. Handmade Tortillas. A uh, great salsa, including habanero. And uh, the carne asada is good. And the, oh, the barbacoa is good. What's it called? Sebrian, the last name. C-E-B-R-I-A-N. At what memorial?
1: White Memorial. Boyle Heights. Boyle Heights. Boyle Heights. All right. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> Three favorite tacos. Araceli, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking your time from your, your very busy schedule and from right. your family. I All appreciate right. it. And maybe one day you'll come back. Yes, I will. Thank All you. All right. Thank you, Araceli. Now, if you enjoyed today's podcast and you're thinking, hey, I think I need to speak to a lawyer, you should get in touch with me. You can do that by going to scmlawoffices.com and sending me a message there. If you're not ready to do that, definitely say hi anyway. You can connect with me on Twitter at sem underscore in underscore ELA. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.